Okay, well, welcome everybody. It's Eric Dryman here for the uh, March issue of Hooks and Hoses podcast. Uh, welcome everybody. I'm glad to have a couple guests here tonight. We've uh, been playing IT uh, technicians this morning uh, with a couple of guys, so hope they may pop in at some point later on in the podcast, but they're having some connection issues right now. So uh, before we get going, just hope everybody's keeping FDIC in their mind, uh, getting registered for classes. I know some of the hot classes are already sold out and all the other ones will as well as uh, along with a lot of the uh, other parts of the show that are going on. So get registered for FDIC. Don't wait much longer. You're going to have to wait until 2025 to, to go take part in it. So uh, I'll introduce my guests here real quick. Uh, I've got uh, Chris Kelly uh, from the Baltimore, or sorry, from the Houston Fire. I got two Chris's on here. Uh, Chris Kelly from the Houston Fire Department, senior captain on Truck 51. Uh, and I've got uh, Chris Short, Lieutenant Chris Short from the Baltimore City Fire Department, uh, currently assigned to Engine 31. Uh, Chris went to the dark side for a little bit here, but uh, he's a truck guy true and true. So and, and uh, that's the focus of our topic this month. We're going to be talking about first two truck operations. Uh, just the roles and responsibilities of a truck and how those things uh, complement the things that the good old engine guys do for us with uh, stretching the hose and spraying the water. So, uh, Chris Short, welcome. If you want to add anything else about yourself, uh, I'll, I'll, this is your opportunity. Uh, thanks, man. It's good to be back. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm glad that we mix up the two Chris's, but he's definitely the more handsome one with that stash. Now. <laughs> Now I've been. Uh, I just like to to put out there. You know, I spent 12 years of my career, uh, south, well, 11 years in Southwest Baltimore in the Third Battalion on a truck company, and then went over to the busiest one of the busiest truck companies in the nation to uh, the east side of Truck Company Five, where I got promoted from. And most of you know, when you get promoted, you really don't have a choice in where you go. It's either go where they send you, or don't take it at all. Well, it was a good. It was a good decision. Definitely. The blasting career out of being on an engine over a truck. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, brother, that's it. All right, Chris Kelly. Uh, yeah, like you said, I'm uh, worked down on Ladder Fifty One. We're in Southwest Houston. Uh, we always tell everybody it's like the Disneyland of firefighting because we don't have zoning in Houston, so we have a uh, more than our fair share of uh, multifamily dwellings, apartments, but we have tons of warehouses, industrial mixed in with a daycare across the street. And then high rises everywhere. So kind of have a little bit of everything what we do, but um, kind of gives us kind of a little bit of everything when it comes to truck work. But um, like I said, I've, I've been with Houston Fire Department for about 19 years. And, you know, I started my career out and spent a good time in volunteer departments that really kind of molded me um, that, you know, we do have lots of manpower in Houston, but we're always kind of looking at how we can operate as efficiently with just our crew and with limited manpower. So a lot of our tactics, you know, we'll kind of try to use stuff and always figure out how we can do more with less. And that, that's been a, a big part, even when we do have all that manpower getting on scene, doing a, a lot of good stuff. Like I said, you know, kind of getting a variety of, lot. we do a lot, a lot of roof work, um, plenty of decent forceful entry, a lot of commercial uh, fires we have. So kind of a little bit of everything. So we like to call it Disneyland for us. Well, good. Yeah. I haven't had, I've never had the opportunity to visit Houston, but I always uh, hear lots of good things about the firefighters down there. And obviously I've spent time with, with a few of you from, from teaching and traveling. So uh, just really happy to have both of you on here. 
uh, let's just get going. Let's just start from uh, from the get go here. The theme for this month with FDIC or fire engineering is uh, is truck related topics. So um, so we're, we're going to talk about the first due truck and the roles and responsibilities of it. Uh, so let's just start. Let's, let's start out like we're in the bay. How do you guys? What is your philosophy on tool assignments and writing assignments and that sort of thing? Uh, you know, you're you're a newly promoted lieutenant or you're a captain on a truck company. You got three other firefighters with you. Um, what are your feelings or opinions on having uh, predetermined assignments for your guys and and splitting crews and doing all those sorts of things? Yeah, I guess I'll jump in. Uh, so we're big on uh, predetermined assignments and something throughout my career, I think has kind of changed, you know, when I first started there, you know, your busier companies would kind of have it and it wasn't super um, set in stone. And now, you know, almost 20 years later, it's, it's really great to see that most stations have writing assignments everywhere we go. And so with me and our crew, uh, you know, I got, I'm fortunate enough to have four guys total in the truck, including myself. So way we kind of set it out with our guys in the morning is whoever's sitting behind me, we call that the saws position. So if we're going top side, they're bringing, they're going to be handling all the saws. Uh, if we're going bottom side, that person's coming with a hook and a, a water can. We're guys, my other firefighter in the back, that's our clean out guy. So if they're going to the roof, they're bringing uh, hooks and they're there just like I said, cleaning up holes and assisting if we got to bring multiple saws for a commercial job. And then if we're going down bottom side, then that person always has the irons and the hook with them. So um, that's kind of pr pretty standard and that really helps us. And then our chauffeur, um, well, we're kind of a little different. Our chauffeurs don't always bunker out, but they, our, our chauffeurs are saving grace. He gets us everything we need that we don't think we, we don't even know we need till we need it. And so he's probably the busiest man on the fire ground, though he may not be, you know, with this bunkered out, he has ladders in place that saw that, you know, our saw just broke. Another one comes up, uh, fans, you name it. He kind of handles everything else as well as, you know, getting the aerial in place and getting that into operation. And so for us having that plan, um, and those tools are, is a big part, especially rooftop safety. Cause when we're going up, I'll always be the first one on the roof and I'm on the last one off, but I always have a hook with me, sounding, decking, making sure that we're not in bad areas. And conversely, when we come off, now that clean-out guy's a hook and he's sounding and making sure whatever path we're taking is safe as well. So the, we found that, you know, really sticking to those tool assignments has been a big deal for us on making sure that we do stay safe in good places on the roof. And then, you know, like I said, there's many times where we have extended reflex times, extended lays that that saws guy with that water can, we're up there putting fire, fire out before, you know, that line's even charged. So that's the... Writing assignments are huge for us, but kind of take a lot of the uh, guesswork out. So as soon as we're on scene, everybody's going, everybody knows their job. And like I said, luckily we don't have to split crews too much just because, and again, in our region of the country, we don't have to do what Chris does and row housing. And, you know, so it's most everybody kind of together, but we can get around inside and outside of structures pretty quick. So that's kind of our, our setup. All right. Well, great. Thanks for that. Chris Short. I know you guys do things different on the East Coast, man, because uh, some of it's because uh, of just the philosophy and just the difference in uh, geography, uh, but certainly the the age of the buildings and uh, you guys driving those bendy trucks up there. Um, you know, uh, you know, you guys, do you have any straight ladders or are they all tillers? 
Yeah, we uh, <clears throat> excuse me, we have um actually two towers. Um, one just got placed in service. Uh, they actually the truck tower one's a place to be at because you kind of you, you pretty much go if there's a work of fire second alarm you you um you almost almost automatically go to it um or more flex dwelling fire they'll they'll dispatch them so that's actually a good spot and then um we have a bunch of reserve straight trucks and i think i, I think there's two or three in service everyday straight trucks uh I, i'm i'm almost positive but uh, there's definitely one. I know that much. Um, it, it's so hard because we're always in and out of reserves. So everybody's just kind of all over the place. Uh, we got a ton of reserves straight trucks. Um, the straight trucks for us are, are miserable. Um, the streets are just, you know, from the 1800s. And, you know, and got back then, you know, and even in the 70s, 80s, 90s, you were lucky if there was one car. Now everybody's got five cars. Trying to park it on these tight streets, it just doesn't work, you know. But um, yeah. So we, majority of ours are, are bendy trucks, tiller trucks. Um, I miss those trucks. <laughs> uh, but no, we um, we're very, very old school in our ways of stuff. We don't like to change it too much. And this is one time that I will say that change isn't always the best, so to speak. Uh, for us, we ride four guys on a well, four four firefighters on a on a uh, truck and an engine but our driver actually so first through truck company i'm, I'm very very I'm, I'm a huge stickler for know your tools know your job it's not going to change unless we change it on scene so having that predetermined this is what you're going to take this is what you're going to do it does wonders for your crew it helps with accountability helps command um it helps the overall uh, operation of the dwelling or the high rise whatever you're on so it, it, it is a very, very good tool and resource to, to utilize if you can get it to make sense for your company, so to speak. Um, we do things very different. The roof man is the driver. He's alone. He goes up by himself. Excuse me. The uh, officer, he is responsible for forceful engine. Side alpha goes in the front door and he operates with, with the engine company. And he pretty much stays by the engine company throughout the first excuse me, the first two engine company, the, uh, step, step, call it, you know, so the back step firefighter, left step, uh, or that's the right, step, rather the right step sits right behind the officer and he meets the tillerman in the back. Or if you got a left step, you know, if you're a straight truck, there'll be a left step and a right step. So they meet up with each other and they grab the ladders, get the ladders in place. So what we do is, uh, we work to the right of the structure. So if 2503 is on fire, we're going to throw ladders to that. And if the numbers go up and it's going in that direction to the right, then we'll go to the Delta exposure and ladder that building. So we work kind of, kind of clockwise in a, in a, in a roundabout manner. Uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the step man and the tillerman or the step man and the, and the left step, they, they're responsible for the second and third floor for first due. So they'll go up, scale the ladder, take the windows out, come down. Um, we have a lot of obstacles in Baltimore city. It's, um, it's a very different city, especially my area where the engine company is. I still run with my old truck company of five in the east side, but we have uh, Johns Hopkins campus. We have a lot, we got a ton of high rises. 
So um, that that can that can kind of hinder things. So if we get a high rise fire, the everybody wants everybody's gotten on the same page in the MOPs, the manual procedures, which is most people's SOGs, is um, one one person from the truck company is going to man the elevator, lock the elevator, in fire firefighter mode, and then they're going to operate for the high rise. Uh, so anybody needs to go up, they'll you know if it's with seven stories or above. They're going to operate the elevator for the crew coming in. And there's something to think about with too. Um, I'm actually kind of glad because this kind of sparked my, my mind a couple of weeks ago when I was doing um, training with, with the crew is <clears throat> let's face it. In the fire service, the lowest man on totem pole kind of always gets the crap end of the deal. Right. We always, Oh yeah, yeah. That's a new, they'll be fine with that. Leave him there. Right. Well, Think about this. If if you're leaving your new guy with the elevator, that does he or she doing? Like that that could be their first on the wagon. Like, are they is that the person you want operating that elevator? You know? Um, and like I like I brought up to, to my crew because I'm a I'm a big firm believer in when you're teaching somebody, ask the questions, let them answer it. Let them talk to you. You trigger it, let them pull the trigger, right? So I like I said, then I said, okay, well, that's your new guy. Do you think it's beneficial for us or for the fire ground to have that new person in that elevator operating that elevator on their first long or their first building fire, you know? And then I turn and say, well, you got three, four or five companies upstairs. Do you really think that your officer should be running, staying with that elevator and operating that elevator? You know, so I'm, I'm trying to push in their minds of like, hey, it might be your driver. It might be your your, your senior man. It might be, you know, you, you might have to deviate than what you normally do. And that would be the only time you'll, you'll do that for that kind of instance, because you want it to be cohesive. You want somebody that knows what they're doing. So although you have a standard operating within your company or within your department, you got to remember, too, that there's going to be times you got to turn around and say, hey, you know what? We're going to have to do this right now. And here's what we're going to do you know, and hand those tools off to that person. So that's just something with predetermined writing assignments and predetermined tools that you really want to keep in the back of your mind to carry out your mission and come out on top, so to speak. You know, but um, yeah, I mean, standard standard dwelling fire, it's uh, Tillerman and the step man or left step, right step work together. Your officer's going in the front door, force an entry, and your driver's going to the roof by himself. But the thing of it is, too, is now you got to add in. Um, we have we have I think 11, 11 to fifteen thousand vacants in the in the city. So there's a lot of board up. There's a lot of bars on the windows. So sometimes, you know, like one thing I did when I was a tillerman was I'd send my stepman up if conditions dictated, and I would stay down there on the on the on the uh, sidewalk or where, and I would start opening up. More company. You know, last thing you want to do is have bars on the windows on the first floor, and then board on boarded up windows on the second floor with screws every you know five six inches apart, and trying to like go back and forth, go back and forth. We could find somebody, you know, Tillerman could work on the floor or the second floor, getting those window or uh, yeah, getting those windows open up with the bars and the plywood, and then send your, your uh, step man or step person. Right up to finish the, the rest of the dwelling. So that's just stuff you got to keep in mind with the predetermined. And that's very new because you could take, Hey, your standard row home fire, your standard dwelling fire, your ladder, 
up, you're going to take the window out, and this is where you're going to start. In reality, you're still doing that. You're just like, hey, if you come across this, take this extra tool with you. You know, look at it this way. So you're still keeping your predetermined tools, your predetermined designations. You're still carrying them, and everybody's still on the same page, but you as the officer need to recognize your first due area or where you could first do if a company's, you know, rotating closure it's just on a on or whatever they're on. It's your, it's your show now. So you're you're rolling up and you need to know your first two or possible first two areas to supplement that. And you could do that right morning lineup at 0700 and say, hey, you know, this is what we might do. But if we run into this, we're going to switch it up and this is what we're going to focus on. So I'm right there with Chris to where that, that will make or break a company on the fire ground is because it, it's cohesiveness. You know, everybody knows what they're doing. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do and they carry the mission out together just separately. Yeah. Thanks. That's great. Okay. We got a, got a new guest in the, in the chat tonight. Hopefully he's or this morning. Hopefully he's uh, um, a little better than he was earlier. Had some storms um, down in God's country where Arthur was this morning. So can you hear us and see us? Okay. Arthur. I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes. Hear me. We got a little bit of a delay on our end. Okay. Well, I have rebooted and everything. It must be in the lines and stuff because I generally don't have this problem. And we've got storms moving through, and I apologize. That's okay. We'll just have to keep that in mind. There's a little bit of a delay between um, everything. So. Uh, Arthur Ashley probably needs no introduction uh, from Lex Captain from the Lexington Fire Department, uh, newly retired firefighter. Uh, but welcome, Arthur. We're glad to have you in the chat. Glad you were able to finally get uh, um, logged on. So, thanks. I appreciate uh, it. Welcome to the show. We're just talking about first two truck company operations. We we just talked about uh, we're talking about writing assignments. Uh, so before we get, I'll ask you your opinion on them uh, and then we'll move on. But, uh, you know, I always, I like, I like the way that, um, I like the idea of having writing assignments. I'll say this just to interject a little bit. Um, I always found that whether we were the first ladder on the scene, the second ladder on the scene, you know, if you have predetermined uh, SOGs that say you're going to do this, if you're the first ladder, you're going to do this. If you're the second ladder, depending upon the occupancy, um, having all that stuff laid out ahead of time uh, makes things run so much smoother on the fire ground, even for your incident commanders. If an incident commander, uh, as my, myself as a battalion chief now, if I know what the guys are going to do when they roll up, unless there's something unusual going on, I can I don't have to worry about making sure that they're splitting crews and they're sending somebody to the inside, they're sending somebody to the roof, they're sending somebody around to the Charlie side, all those sorts of things. Um, so I'm I just wanted to throw that in there because, you know, we oftentimes think about the company level stuff and that's certainly important, but even at the, at the command level, the incident commanders from that standpoint, it minimizes a lot of the radio traffic. It certainly uh, limits the amount of confusion that's taking place on the fire ground because everybody already knows what their job is before they roll up. And, you know, if you're, if you're really prepared and you've had those conversations with your crew rather than rolling up and saying, command, this is ladder X, you know, what he wants to do. Right. So, 
Um, it just makes everything, to, you know, whether it's an engine company, truck company, doesn't really matter. If you have those conversations ahead of time, it just makes everything run, in my opinion, so much smoother on the, on the fire ground. So, um, Arthur, uh, you got any comments on uh, crew assignments or uh, what you would talk to your crew about as far as who's doing what? Uh, if you got a new guy in and you were trying to educate him on how you like to do business, uh, any tips or rules that you um, made him follow? Um, oh, yeah. I've, uh, I'm, I am big on the crew assignments. And the reason for that is, is that if you, you know, you fail to prepare, you, you're going to, you're, you're going to, you're going to fail. And so instead of showing up and looking like a bunch of spoons and not doing what needs to be done, you got to be proactive. And I've always said that you're three or less, you're short staffed. You're four or more, you're fully staffed. And that changes across the United States because not everybody has a full staff. So with that being said, uh, you know, they took me down to three people sometimes. And that would change the way I would operate. If I had a full boat, I would split my crew. I would still split my crew on a residential structure because my driver kind of operates different than everybody else. Uh, it's something I came up with after many years of traveling and teaching and trying to figure out what to do with short staffing. Uh, and it's paid off. I, I used us as a guinea pig several years back, and, and it's paid off. Um, paid off with some, making some grad. Paid off with communication. It's paid off with other things but you know crew assignments uh you, you've got a new guy coming in he's traveled in he's come in from uh, uh across town and he's riding your rig for the shift uh every morning the drive for his job if a new guy comes in he goes to the computer and he would print off the assignments for each person for each kind of thing they're going to uh working fire in a structure that is residential uh you know single family dwelling uh, multiple family dwelling low mid and high rise elevator emergencies extrication all the way down to ems working a code what your position is and what you're grabbing and bringing it cut down on the chaos it cut down on the time i didn't have to tell anybody what to do they knew what they're bringing they knew what they were doing um and it worked great for me uh and a lot of other company officers officers mirror that which is you know you want people to do because you know obviously you think everybody thinks they're doing it right but you have to evaluate it and see what you get turned the guys loved it because things were getting done these chiefs were loving it because they knew we were getting stuff done um it just streamlines everything and i think you set yourself up for failure if you don't prepare to have your crew to be split have your crews ready for roof ventilation or anything like that you know, we come off the rig it's don't have to think about it i don't have to tell them anything they're grabbing their tools they know where they're going they know where we're heading and they know what needs to be done and you know it's just like it's just it's just a thing that's part of leadership that's part of being a good officer is to look at the strengths and weaknesses of your crew and also look at the strengths and weaknesses of your truck where do you need to fix it where does the guy have his hand held a little bit till he be brought up to par and all this and that but you know if you don't have through integrity and, and positions, you're planning to fail. Now, I can easily say that because all of us have come from a department where we're paid, we get on the rig, and we've got 40-plus people on scene for a first alarm assignment. And I'm like, you know, we, we've got more people than we need most of the time. 
But then we got to look at the, the, the you know, uh, fire department USA, your staff and things like that. You've got fire departments going in that their engine based fire department have truck companies. And so they're going to have to have a, a, a pregame plan of while they're coming in, they're being assigned and they're assigned as a truck company. So they know that their mindset changes to a truck company operations. Uh, they're going to have to have SOPs and policies and guidelines, which I don't like those. Sometimes I like them to be a little open-ended where you can adjust uh, or have that company, excuse me, have that, uh, battalion chief, district chief, wherever you're at call for what he needs when they come, but it has to be assigned. If not, him, it's got to be assigned on some, um, no fire goes out on a, on a good note with that good truck work. And so if you don't have that part of your foundation, your truck works. Yeah, I agree. I, what do you guys think? And, and I, I get on this soapbox quickly when I travel around and I, I teach or visit departments that are smaller, but, uh, you know, some people say, oh, well, we can't do it that way because we're not career. We don't run with four guys. We only run with two. And, I, and you know, and I say, well, you can do it. You know, and I'd be happy to show you how, you know, I mean, I, um, whether you, you work in a, a small career department or you work in a volunteer organization where you don't know who the, who's going to be on the apparatus, you know, it can be as simple as just making a laminated card and saying, if you're sitting in this seat, these are the tools you grab. And if we're the, you know, the assigned ventilation, these are, this is what your job is for assigned search. This is what you're, I mean, it, to me, it's, I think it's, I think it's a lot, it's, you know, people get mesmerized by it or think they can't do something because they aren't running with three or four or they don't have staffing at all. And to me, that's just I kind of, um, you know, they just needed explained to them. So I know you guys have all experienced that traveling around. Uh, have you had any interaction, any experience with that or, training people on that and had success. Seems like almost every. Go ahead, Chris, <laughs> uh, short. I said, <clears throat> excuse me. It sounds mm -hmm. like every other training we've been to teaching because, you know, they're calling us there for a reason. And, and 90, 96% of the time it's low staffing and what to do. And sometimes the biggest, the biggest hurdle, honestly, is just trying to get them out of their own mindset. And one way to do that is start with prioritization. You know, your engine company can only do so much. I mean, say, <clears throat> say pretty big setback and they're taking an alley line of 400 feet. I mean, they're going to have their hands full. So maybe your priority should be getting to that door and getting it open for the engine company, you know, and just kind of breaking it up with that. But again, you're not going to know that unless you know your first due or second due area to where you're going to be running into. And once you, once you change their mindset or our mindset, which is the hardest thing to do with firemen, once you do that, it starts to make sense. And they start, everybody starts to realize like, Hey man, we only, we only have two people, but we're a two people wrecking machine. You know, it, it said that one, one Navy SEAL is as good as, five heavily trained soldiers you know well you could do the same thing with us if you just get out of your own stubbornness and realize that there's a lot you could do with two people yeah you're going to be tired but if you start your prioritization immediately and work off of that two people could do a lot of damage 
Yeah. Art or uh, Chris? I'll jump in. Um, one, I think the big thing is that people have to get out of this mindset that fire ground tasks are associated with the truck that you ride in on. Because that engine is going to show up on an EMS call. It may show up on hazmat. It may show up on a variety of stuff. We have no problem changing to that. But somehow we think truck work, you know, it's like, oh, it's a guy's in a ladder truck. You know, if you're, like I said, Nowhereville, USA, you know, you might all be engines, but, you know, you may, engines, first engines in place, you're not doing truck work, even though you don't have to have a ladder on your truck. You know, the fire ground tasks are not, you know, it, it's not a hard thing on what truck you come in on. And so I think when you, that low staffing, you have to look at the task and tasks are assigned and it's maybe not so specialized if somewhere where you have lots of staffing and lots of trucks showing up. Yeah, I agree. Arthur, I saw you have your hand up earlier on on this question. Did you have something you wanted to add? Yeah, I think it's uh, I think it's fold. And the reason I say it's twofold is because I think that uh, um, the first part, I think it's that there's a lot of people who've never been shown an aggressive right way. Uh, and I think that's been passed down through generations of, of firefighters that didn't know uh, we've never shown, you know, we all didn't know stuff until we were shown and, and, and that's how we gained our experience. And then the second thing I think is that I think it's a, it's a, I think some people use it as an excuse not to do stuff. I think it's, um, it could be the fear of the unknown. It could be the fear of their, their, their lack of training, fear of their lack of experience, their knowledge, their leadership, uh, their tools, their resources. It could be a multitude of things. I mean, we've all been in our teaching traveling around the country. Uh, you know, I can speak, I've, I've taught with uh, both Chris's. I've taught with both Chris's and we have been to some really small places before we've done some stuff and all seen some stuff. And, and I come from the Appalachia. I can tell you where there's stuff that, you know, nobody knows. You have to push volunteers to do stuff. And it's it just, it's, it's sometimes it just they need to be led in the right direction. It has to be the right person or persons teaching them and leading them in that direction with the right mission. What is the mission? I mean, overall, for me, the mission is 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 saving people's lives, and you know we build off of that. You know, I also also said that you know I'll never take anything away from an engine company because they put fire, the fire out. And Andy Frederick said. More lives are saved with properly placed hose line than anything we do. And I agree with that 100%. I also have to add my part to it. It has to be in the right hands, the right, right placed, used correctly. And I've seen that so many times where I shake my head and I go, what are you doing? Especially when I'm, you know, volunteering, I've got a thousand gallons of water. And I know I've got a six and a half to seven minutes of water. And if it's in the wrong hands of the, uh, of the wrong person, they're wasting water. That's small town USA firefighting right there. And if you don't have a truck company, at least a, a plan of doing something, we all know that we could go in on some of these fires that we see. I don't like the armchair quarterback. Any videos, you know, we talk about them. But a lot of us, we've been on these fires. We go in, we pull ceilings, we got fires moving down a hallway, we get in the room, we start pulling ceilings above us. The engine's working with us. They're not hitting it till we're telling it to hit it. They're letting us pull it. They're not darkening it down. We can't see and all this stuff like that. That's gained through knowledge and experience, just experiences. Like, These guys didn't know that. And anytime I know someone, I take that in consideration, man. You've got to, I would love to be able to train the world doing this stuff. 
but we can't. And, and I think it comes down to not knowing how to do things and using it as an excuse of not to do it. We've always done it this way. Well, that way is not working. You're burning houses down. People need you and you're not responding. You know, you got to protect the citizens of your community and the visitors of the community. What are you doing? You know, so it's, it's, that's, that's my two cents on it. <laughs> All right. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, we've hit the, uh, the order of arrival or the, the crew assignments, uh, I think pretty good. Uh, moving on to, uh, to other, the other roles and responsibilities for the first two truck coming into a scene. Um, as far as apparatus placement and size up goes, let's just talk about that and give, give everybody in, um, you know, your experiences and your, um, talk about your knowledge when it comes to that, as far as, um, things you're looking for that maybe the engine, the engine's probably looking at, at things differently and how you, how a size up for a truck crew, truck company officer is going to be different or even, a you know, a, the, uh, chauffeur himself, the EVD. Uh, how that size up and what you're looking at is going to be different than say an engine company or squad company or somebody else. Yeah. So your, your truck company, like in, in my areas, um, one thing I was taught by the very old school guys or old school drivers, something I like to pass on is you got to pay attention to your scrub area, regardless of what it is, whether it's a row home, a building, you know, uh, an apartment complex, whatever it is, you, you want to have the optimized, optimization of that aerial or the tools that are on it and one thing people don't think about is how fast something can go from going in putting a fire out to defensive operations well once everybody gets there you're not going to have a chance to move that aerial you're not going to have a chance to, to move that i should not aerial i should say truck you're not going to have a chance to do that most times and 99 percent of the time the engine forgets that they could stretch hose line and we can't stretch, but 90 feet of our aerial or hundred, you know, of our aerial, depending on how big it is. And we only have a certain amount, you know, X amount of ground ladders. So they'll park them completely block us out sometimes. So uh, it's good that a good driver or a good officer work together and know, again, it comes down to knowing the areas that you respond to, you know, you're, like we got row homes. So a lot of times <clears throat> I, I taught people and I didn't realize it until I got older and beat up on the job to where the closer you are to that building with that pillar cab or the rear of that truck, the easier your life gets for throwing ladders, especially in East coast or, you know, um, parts where there's snow and ice and just terrible weather. Um, that's just something in the back of your mind. You got to think about that. You wouldn't normally like, ah, yeah, they'll be fine. It's part of their job. But that, that saves seconds. That saves energy. That saves everything under the sun. But you don't get that unless you know about it or somebody teaches you that or you start thinking outside of the box and get out of your own mind about it. And we'll pull right to the address side. Like, even on medic runs, I was driver. I would pull up to every medic run as if I was going to a dwelling fire. And I would pull just past the address to where the back of my ladder truck was right there at the door of the, the address that was on fire that we you know, would be on fire where the emergency is. The other thing is too, is take advantage of those times to where a good, a good chauffeur, a good EVD, a good driver, a good senior man, a good officer knows the cons of their, of their apparatus. 
knows what it can and can't do. And take that time when you're on the street, no matter what the emergency is, no matter what the call is, what reason you're out there. And, hey, I could fit in between these two cars with my A-style outriggers or A-frame outriggers or whatever outriggers you have. Take that time to start spotting it that way. So as soon as that box comes in, it doesn't matter if it's three in the morning and it's hellfire and brimstone. You're going to be focused on what you got to be focused on. You're going to plant that apparatus exactly where it needs to be every single time without hesitation, without even thinking about it. But again, that that's something that you have to get out and you have to practice. You have to look at every building, even high rises like, people, well, you know, aerial's not really going to do much on high rise. Sometimes it's not about that. Sometimes it's about you might need a flying standpipe. You know, and that could re- that could easily reach the fifth floor. You, know, you want to be in a position to be able to do that. You don't want to park there and have your mindset of, oh, it's only a higher I could do with the aerial. You don't know that. So you have to treat every dwelling the same, every same for the most part as far as spotting the apparatus. Best position for the best scenario and what's best for your crew. What's going to be best two hours later. And that, that's what you want to be looking at. You want to look at the what, when, where, how, then. And if you could do that, you're going to set not only yourself up, yeah. you're going to set that whole fire ground. Yeah, good good explanation there. So for some in the audience, you may not be be clear on it, uh, Lieutenant Short. Explain to the audience what you mean by scrub area. We all know what that means, but some people may not. So... Yeah, scrub area is basically maximizing um, the area in which you're going to be able to work in or access in a grand scheme of things to kind of simplify things. Uh, so when I was when I was a driver, I would try to so row homes we call it the spine of the building, right? It's the party wall or the firewall that shares the two dwellings because obviously the row homes like a townhouse. So to maximize my scrub area, I would park that so when I threw my aerial. It went right in between those two buildings. I access each each exposure. Sometimes I get all the way down to, to Bravo Two exposure or Delta Two exposure, uh, which is two two dwellings down from the actual fire building. Uh, the other thing it would do is set me up for success because if something happened on the fire building itself, to where the roof got too spongy, I had the spine of that building right where my aerial was. That I can I can easily get off there, or I can move it over and and uh, operate on the Bravo exposures. So you're maximizing how much area you could actually work with your with your aerial or apparatus tower, whatever you know, whatever you're driving or operating. That's the simplest way to put it. All right, thanks for that explanation. I know you know some people may be newer to the to the job or to the fire service and may not may not understand what that means they haven't heard that term before so thanks for explaining it to us arthur or, or uh captain kelly either one of you got uh got an opinion well, i know you got opinions <laughs> but uh, who wants to go first <laughs> i'll jump in um yes yeah, so right. for size up and placement uh it's very critical for us and it kind of goes back to what we're trying to accomplish you know the engine gets there they're getting water on the fire um our biggest um our biggest threat that we run into on fire ground on, with our building constructions, we have a lot of garden style apartments with big common attics. So we'll have 10, 20 units long. So when we're pulling in, yeah, we're looking to get, you know, 
scrub area is not as big of a deal because most of our upper floors usually we have most of them are two, two stories so our ground ladders are can actually access those even easier so our big thing is looking to where we can get that aerial in one place to get roof access but as soon as we're pulling in we're already looking at smoke conditions so me as a truck officer i'm trying to figure out is this fire still contained is this a small cooking fire or is it already pumping smoke into the attic and starting lateral spread? And we find that when we don't control that lateral spread, that's when the you know ladder pipes go bump and buildings go down. So we're looking to where we can put the ladder. Um, and and we, a lot of times we'll ladder further away from the fire because we have a lot of lightweight um, prefab truss construction in, in probably say three quarters of our stuff. So we may be three or four units down where the aerial is actually going up because we're walking from good and we may not even be able to get right over the apartment because again, wood decking and those structural members might be getting compromised. So we may be cutting one or two units over to stop that lateral spread. Uh, and then that gives that engine time as they're hitting the main seat of the fire, start getting the attic and subsequent engines to start getting in the attic and putting water on it. So our, our size up kind of, again, looks at that smoke. We have smoke, you know, the color of the smoke, that's if it's coming out of the eaves and how dark it is, how far down it's pushing out. And so we're going to try to set a truck up where to get our aerial up there. We prefer to use our aerial to getting up on those roofs just because once it's in place, we can ascend that aerial much quicker than climbing up an extension ladder. And in an emergency, we can all bail off three of us onto that ladder uh, safely much more quickly. So we're always trying to get that in place. But again, it may be a little bit further down, but then it also puts our truck in a good position that if we had to flow water, it can still flow for water that standpoint. And if we can get it on the end uh, where we can reach a gable, we don't like flowing water down. We like to flow water on plane. And so if we can get in gable holes and stuff like that, we try to set it up where we still have kind of multi-purpose. So again, it, it kind of goes back to the involvement of the fire, how much is spreading, and then controlling that lateral spread to then give that engine company a chance to stop it. So. Yeah, you said something there. I think that's very important. Um, you know, particularly listening to you know the between the two Chris's here, the the areas that they work in, the age of the buildings, the construction type, completely different, right? Um, the the idea, and, and I think probably most of the country, you know, is dealing with with the challenges from lightweight construction. And I see it. I've seen it several times. You know, you tell somebody to go to the roof. So what do they do? They lay, they ladder, they, they climb to, up to the roof right near where they want to cut the vent hole, right? You said something that's so important, and that is being uh, proactive instead of reactive and maybe starting from a little bit farther down so that if the roof starts to go or it takes you longer than you think it's going to, um, you've, you've built in a little bit of, uh, you know, leeway there. I think that's so important, particularly with, uh, with all the lightweight construction around the country. So, Arthur, do you have anything? to add to that yeah I, I, you know i i've had people on on people coming in who are on quince and i've had a lot of guys ask me hey we're coming in i don't know if we're coming in as an engine i don't know if we're coming in as a truck and i said well if you listen to this you'll never go wrong um come in with the mindset of a truck show and the reason for that is is once you come in and you get set up and you and instead of parking you position the truck where it needs to be based on what you got and you utilize that ladder you know, once you hit that air brake on a quint and the hose lines pulled off that truck and the little lines come off and the big lines come in you're there it's not moving and if you don't think like a truck chauffeur you're taking the aerial device completely out of the ball game seen it 
seen it in other places. Just I've seen a quint sitting on a hydrant before relaying to another truck, and it just breaks my heart. Um, the other things that that I you know it doesn't matter if you're in a a, a strike stick rear mount, a, a any tower mid mount or a tiller. I like to see if you're working the first, second, or third floor that you know the swing reach coming off the side of the truck of your of, of your ladder. It could be 30 to 35 feet. You need to know how you need to be away from that building. You may be pushed up against a bunch of cars on the right-hand side, so you may have to short jack. You don't have to know how to short jack. Coming in, you're looking at power lines. You know, don't be afraid to beat your truck. I'm not afraid to beat your truck where we're at. And we've done it before based on what we saw at the time for possible rescue and things of that nature coming from the end. And, 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 you know, it's under certain conditions, not, not in the rain or anything like that. The ground has to look stable, blah, blah, blah. That's, you know, if your department wants to do that. You know, a mid-mount coming in, mid-mount tower, swing 15 degrees away from the building. You get the optimum use of your entire aerial device and you get that scrub all the way down the building. Uh, back in the place. Uh, don't be afraid to ask your officer or somebody in the back to, to, to help you get set up somewhere or just look. You know, eye your know how to eye your turntable to your 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 target. It's just little things like that. You'll never know that when you're sitting in the firehouse. You have to get out and actually do this constantly, constantly, constantly do it. But one of the biggest things is is come in with a truck truck show mindset and realize that you're not parking the truck, you're positioning the truck for success. And once that truck's outriggers come out or the hose comes off from that quint and the big lines come in, whatever, you're stuck. And what Chris said, you know, move down and stuff like that. I always like to say, hey, if our aerial device is not in operation now, let's look to where it may be in the apartment complex in a little bit. I may need to be somewhere else because I, I see this going south. Or just experience with these certain apartments or this building construction, the way things are going, this is going south. Let's put us in a position where we're going to be able to knock it out. Yeah, good stuff. Um, so as we move in more first new truck stuff, let's talk a little bit about ventilation. We all know, you know, things have changed with, uh, with the way people view ventilation now compared to the way it was viewed, um, in years past. What's, uh, what's your opinions on when you put horizontal versus vertical ventilate and, uh, times that, uh, the importance of coordination with the, with the engine guys. Chris Kelly, you want to start us off? Sure. So, yeah, I think ventilation, I think, is probably one of the most important things outside of getting water on the fire. Because, I mean, the fire spreads to a structure not by burning solids, but burning the smoke and the gases. And so, and we also know that the number one killer of fire victims is smoke inhalation. So, I mean, ventilation starts from the time the engine walks through that front door. And we can look at UL experiments that show us just that front door being open that we see, you know, and even an alternate vent point, even if it's a window or above that we have cool air and oxygen rushing in at the bottom. We may have smoke coming out at the top part of that bi-directional flow, but just that front door opening is sending a rush of oxygen to possible victims. Uh, the faster we can get that off, the better. We always kind of prefer if we can do vertical ventilation, just because that's a natural path of heat and smoke um, that we want to take it. And then we can also control and keep it from, you know, from spreading. So, I mean, that's always kind of our, our go-to 
I know there's some people that say, well, it doesn't equal cooling. Well, we can look at all the studies and then we know from anecdotal experience as well that all the survivable spaces get immensely better. Again, we got data to back that up. We have experience to back that up. Um, the room that has already flashed over and it's 1,500, 2,000 degrees, that may stay there, right? We understand that, right? Now we have numbers to put that to it. And they're like, oh, wow, it didn't, it didn't get cooler. Well, it never did. But it controlled that fire and kept it right there. And then anybody else that was in a survival space now, you know, their chance of survival is way up. And then, you know, the faster that we can ventilate, we also know that's the faster that search team can find somebody. And I think that people kind of get this misnomer that search is, you know, oh, it's quick and you can smoke up a, you know, an OPG burn building all you want. It's not the same when you can't see your hand in front of your face. And if your victim's in the back of a, you know, even if it's a little 1500 square foot house, they're in the back, you start in the front, it's going to take a while to get there. And so the faster that we can get that smoke out, the faster that search crew can find them, the faster the engine company can get to see the fire or find the victims on the way there. So um, you know, like I said, in our, our building construction, we're lucky because we have one and two story structures mostly, but we still do have some three, four stories. And if that's the case, you know, we'll go, you know, we'll, we'll horizontal vent and take what we can. Um, if we do have stuff where it's, you know, we need to search right away, there's possible trapped trying to get in there. We'll still ventilate as we go and try to get somebody opposite, you know, using essentially an outside. We don't have a traditional outside vent guy, but we'll split off and do something like that if we know we can't get that vertical vent hole open. But we know that, again, we have our multifamily structures with common attics. The faster that we get that hole in, the faster we control that fire, we stop the lateral spread, we get all the smoke out. And then we also make it safer for that engine company. So that's kind of, to me, I think it's the biggest priority and the most impactful thing outside of putting water on the fire. Uh-oh. Looks like Chris locked up on us. Oh, there you go. You're back. <laughs> you vapor locked for a second. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, Art or uh, Chris Short? What do you guys think? What's your uh, philosophy on venting horizontal versus vertical and coordinating with the engine? You know, different things you've picked up over your career. I have. I've always been aggressive for vertical. Uh, I also know when to say no, it's not necessary to, to do vertical ventilation on this based on the fire, based on the smoke, based on the communication from the engine company or, or crews inside and things of that nature. There, we all know there are certain fires that needs just horizontal, and we can get by with that. Um, aggressive vertical ventilation, you know, it does have to be coordinated. Uh, a lot of times that that we're cutting and, and, you know, having quick cuts that are large, because the day of the 4 by 4 hole is basically over because of the square footage we're dealing with now, uh, with the, the energy that's coming off these fires, and, and to get these places opened up, you know, being on the receiving end, what I mean by that is, is being on the engine company, making, company making the push, or on the rescue company making the search, when that roof gets opened up, oh my gosh, it is the biggest difference in the world to make that push for the engine or the, for, the, for the search team. But get 10 inches of, of, of fresh air or lift off that fuel for those victims. And that's what it's all about right there because that may be all they need. And so... I'm big on vertical ventilation, and I'll even, and this sounds crazy, but but there's a method to the madness. We'll go ahead and we'll start 
a, a quick dice cut of a four by eight cut even before the engine even starts to 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 get say we're ahead of it the reason for that is you don't punch the louvers till it's time to punch the louver i already have the cut i can already have it ready to go and as soon as they start to hit it or they make an entry and we're communicating we start punching the louvers then i i, I decide do we need to open it up anymore based on what I'm seeing coming out of this hole? Is it a vent ignition? You know, does it ignite as soon as it comes out? Is it heavy smoke under pressure? It means I need to extend my hole. If things get better inside or, or, or not moving or anything like that, there is nothing wrong with being proactive, but you have to be in control. Guess what? If the engine loses water, something happens, I can shut those loopers and control them. It's all about control. Um, it's, you know, vertical ventilation, there are places in this United States, there are large departments that I have been at, that I have taught at, had, had people in the class that will not go to the roof. And the first thing that, I come, that comes out of my mouth is, I feel sorry for your engine company and the victims. And that's, and that's the truth, because, I mean, those, you've never had somebody vent a hole above your head and you're taking a beating of hemline that's a true beating when you're trying to make a push, and it gets everything out of you. As soon as you hear the song start up, you, you can feel it. You guys know this. You can see it. You can feel it. I mean, sometimes it's amazing how fast it is, and sometimes it takes a little bit more depending on what you're in. But I think verbal ventilation also has been over the, over the years in a lot of places, and, and, and I'll, I'll go ahead and I'll say this. Florida is getting better at verbal ventilation. There's a lot of places that won't do vertical ventilation. And I think it's because for years they've never done vertical ventilation. And the, the, the fear of getting on lightweight truss, I get on lightweight truss all, all day long. It's, it's it, I'm not, this this domino effect, no, I don't believe it because here's, I've been on roofs where we've had numerous trusses burn out, but the decking is holding that complete roof together. It's, 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 it's all about the building instruction about a lot of things. And if you're a good crew and you found your roof and you've got a good supervisor on the roof paying attention to things, you're going to notice things, you know, I've seen some guys, we've seen some videos here lately. That there's some guys who don't sound as they go up, they're just up there cutting a hole because they think that's what they got to do. And we're seeing guys fall, fall through the roof because the decking is burning away. The trusses are still there. And the and the, the the shingles are giving you a false sense of security. It, it's they say it's the most dangerous place in the fire ground, and I believe that. But I also think that if you do it right, it's 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 a lost art in some places, or it's never been taught. They've never done it. Once they see it, feel it, and experience it, I think they would change their tactic. Yeah, yeah, it is a lost art. I think, or I think to a certain degree, you know. We don't go to as many fires as we used to nationwide. You know, fire runs are down and, you know, going, you know, you got to get on these roofs. I appreciate that, that point you made. You got to get on these roofs and actually feel what it feels like going out to a, to a training academy or, a, or building a prop out behind your firehouse, you know, to simulate a pitched roof ventilation. It's certainly better than nothing. Um, but if you haven't been on a spongy roof or you haven't experienced uh, you know, that natural bounce and, and flex and stuff that you get uh, to know what you're feeling. And, and that's just normal. It's not that the roof's giving away or if it feels, 
like more than normal than maybe the roof is given away. But you guys know what I'm talking about, particularly with the with the lighter weight um, trusses and the, and, and the engineered wood and stuff. You know, it just feels different. You can go up on a on a house that was built in the 1930s or 40s and walk on that roof, and it, hell, you may as well have been walking on a concrete sidewalk. And then you go <laughs> go you know to a house that was built six years ago, and you're walking across it, and it's about like walking across the trampoline, and that's just normal. <laughs> um, so it, you know, there's even different building construction types, you know, and, and, uh, and we, that's just talking about pitch roof ventilation. For, I mean, it, it obviously has its very, um, purpose with flat roof too, but, uh, you know, probably the most of the work that gets done, at least my experience or, or opinion is that it's probably done on pitch roofs more than it's done on flat roofs. Um, you know, at least except for maybe shorts world, which everything's about everything's got a flat roof, I think, but, uh, but you know, for the rest of the for the rest of us outside the East Coast, you know, I think it's mostly pitched roof work that's getting done on a on a regular basis. So, um, what else? What else? We are there things we haven't? Uh, I know we didn't hit real hard on horizontal ventilation. I was always a big fan of it when it could be done. Um, you know, I, I don't I don't discount going to the roof. I I enjoyed going to the roof. I always liked the opportunity to to do vertical ventilation when the when the opportunity presented itself. Uh, but I do think that uh, to a certain degree, there's there's kind of a, you know, you talk about the, the vertical ventilation is kind of a lost art. I think even horizontal ventilation for some people is a lost art. And it's a lot easier to do in, in many cases than uh, vertical ventilation because it's a whole, whole lot more complicated than just going and finding a window and breaking it. I mean, that's certainly ventilation. You're creating an opening in the structure. Um, you're piercing the, you know, the, the envelope of the building. But um, you know, coordinate that with the engine crew and, and knowing that you need to be on the offside and and don't do it too soon and, and, and all that. Just that that takes a lot of practice and understanding too. you know, understand what you're doing to the building. So. Chris Short. Yeah, the um, you know, you were talking about uh, horizontal vertical. So like, like row homes are weird, man. And I'm I, like my town, my row home I live in now, there's two skylights. And basically, I mean, if you really look at it, a townhouse or a row home, there's not much, let, let's be honest, right? Uh, a lot of your townhouses now, like one, my wife and I are looking buying, it's got a pitch roof on it. However, just like a, just like a row home, it's an open floor plan. You know, you could walk in there and basically see one side to the other, right? So if you're looking at a, at a vertical, you got to look at the chimney effect that that's going to have. Like you could have a basement fire and, or, well, I mean, it would, depending on the, depending on a townhouse, it'd be a first floor. Fire. Um, but that's going to go right up that stairwell. And then that's just going to, until you put that fire on it, like, like uh, something I think was Art mentioned before that energy that's coming off of these dwellings now that's going to push right up to the top floor, right? Maybe, maybe that vertical ventilation isn't what you need. Maybe you need to open up that first floor, open up that second floor and just do horizontal ventilation, right? Um, unlike vertical ventilation, you can cut that hole anytime you want. If you got a second floor fire and it's two story, where's that fire going? Right. We talked about before how everything rises, heat, smoke, flames, everything rise. So you cut that hole in that roof, 
I think Art said it before, all you're doing is gaining advantage for the, for the engine car. So the faster you get that hole open, like I got skylights. That's the first thing I take out of skylights. Um, then I start cutting my hole because what's the worst that's going to happen? It's going to go up. Okay, that's what I want. That's what we want it to do. That's a purpose of vertical ventilation, right? So now we go to horizontal ventilation, different thought process. You know, that, like, I had a dwelling a couple, couple weeks ago where it was sealed up so tight, I called in nothing showing. And there was little, it was clear as day. Well, as soon as we took that door, it it you saw that you saw the uh, the air rush in, push the smoke, and the next thing I know, it was banked down to the floor all the way out to. The Everybody got there and was like, you know, they're getting ready to vertical ventilate. They're getting ready to open up the second floor, and finally I called the basement fire. Well, it was sealed up so tight that it was just, it it wasn't moving anywhere. Well, as soon as we opened the door, it literally shot right up to the second floor. And was barreling out the second floor, nice thick black smoke. All it was was a basement fire. You know, would that be a time to vertical ventilate? No, there's no reason to. It, there's nothing up there. There's nothing beyond the basement. So what you'll do is you open up the first floor and open up the basement best you can, and put some fans in place, and you'll move just as much smoke as you would if you ve- vertically ventilated on a second floor fire or third floor fire. Um, but one thing you got to remember is. If you don't open up those windows on that first floor, wherever you're, I'm just using first floor as an example, wherever you're going to be horizontal ventilate, uh, horizontally ventilating, you're not going to do any good unless you open those windows all the way. You get the, get rid of those screens. Screens block 85 to 90% of, of ventilation. Even if you just open the door or open your window on a hot day, if you don't move those windows, just right you're not going to have any ventilation in your house you know it might be better off opening on the windward side or you know where, where the wind is blowing against opening that bottom part of that window all the way but then on the opposite side of the room open the top window because you'll actually move air you know it's not always just about taking the whole window out and opening that place up to vent you might have to take a second and actually think about how this how this smoke is moving how it's traveling, where it's going, what what way the wind's blowing that day, where's where's the best possible place to put that po- positive pressure or that negative pressure ventilation to optimize that horizontal ventilation. There's a lot more calculations that got to go into horizontal than vertical, to be honest with you. And that's just in my um, I'm a firm believer in getting on that roof, opening it up as quick as possible, right over where they're going to be operating, and start working your way back. I mean. You might end up cutting the whole roof off. You might end up just popping a skylight and putting a, a biggest hole as possible in one area. And that might that might suffice. You know, where vertical ventilation or um sorry, horizontal ventilation, there's a lot more calculations that gotta go into that. You know, you can do a lot of damage opening up windows that you shouldn't open up that people aren't ready for. You can't go in and take windows out when an engine company's not in place. You're going to get somebody hurt. It's going to move that fire. And that's just things that you have to take into consideration. So, like Art said, it is the most dangerous place to be. Is 100%. But at the same time, if you know your roof construction, what you're doing, it could be one of the best places to do the best outcome. You know, very little can go wrong putting a hole in a roof. Let's be honest, right? But we've seen, I mean, I've been victim of it where I spent days in a, in a burn unit because somebody took the biggest window out 
before the end, before the hose line was in place, as my partner and I were doing a, you know, so there's a lot more calculations and a lot more experience that needs to be gained when doing or talking about doing horizontal ventilation. And you got to look at your building construction, row homes, townhomes, especially nowadays, they're, townhomes ain't matchstick. It's just waiting to burn. You know, it's all wood. It's all, um, what do they call all that? Uh, commercialized wood. So it's just glued together, glued together. That fire is going to travel faster than you'll ever see. And one way to minimize that is by keeping it in one area. If you got fire blowing out or smoke blowing out of the, the turbulent smoke coming out of the first floor alpha side, it's probably okay to take those windows as long as the door's getting shut and you know it's being controlled somewhere in that building. Cause that's just, that's that's it, it, it. why that engine company's getting in there putting that fire out. I can tell you firsthand, especially now that I'm I'm an engine boss, I never thought I'd see that. Um, I've taken the beatings, and I'm sitting down there as as a guy that was on an, as a, as somebody that was for almost twelve years. Open that roof up. Open them windows. What the heck are you guys doing? Get that opened up. Like we're, it still has to be somewhat calculated because it's going to determine what the best route out of trouble for that smoke and all that toxic crap that, that you're taking a beating from is going to go. And if you don't do it just right, you could really, really hinder the performance and the outcome of that fire. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your comment. You were talking about when you said you were going around opening windows and opening the bottom sash versus the top sash. And, uh, it's not a serious story. It's a funny story, but I can remember uh, being on a truck company and having a captain chasing a captain around the house one day because I was going around closing windows. And the next thing I know, I'm chasing him around and he's opening everything he can find. And I'm saying, what are you doing? He goes, well, we need to ventilate this place. And I said, I'm working on it, but I can't pressurize the building to ventilate it. If you keep opening all these windows and, and uh, patio doors. So let me do my job. You go back and manage the hose line. So finally, finally he agreed to let me do my job and, and he went back to doing his. So, um, but yeah, it does take, it does understanding what you're doing to the building, the building envelope and everything is great. I like Dart's point, you know, the hope that truly I I'm, I'm waiting for to start seeing publications change uh, from the from the typical four by four recommendation for for vertical openings and you know cutting a roof you know the old four by four days are are gone right you know I, I mean we I like to use the example of uh, you know the door that you you know a thirty six by six foot seven foot door you know you got eighteen twenty square feet worth of uh, ventilation opening you're you're creating with the front door compared to only sixteen with a with a four by four hole. So, um, I see for that, you know, that certainly, um, being something that's going to change, um, you know, whether officially changes and one of the publication, uh, books puts it out in their recommendations, or it's just by word of mouth, you know, uh, word gets carried and everybody starts to realize that that's no longer, no longer the way to, to cut a roof, but, uh, good stuff, fellas. I really appreciate it. It's, uh, it's actually in a book. Is it's it? actually already in a book. It's just, uh, I, I just got done. Uh, we just got done writing a book that's coming out and, uh, the ventilation with the four by eight hole starting is in there. And it explains about the four by four hole being like when they started with the IFSTA manuals with our basically our 900s, you know, back in the day when we had smaller homes and all this and that and, and the four by four hole 
And then we did studies. Everybody did studies, and we started to see and everything. But yeah, I, I threw that in there because I felt that it was important to to start big, at least at least a sheet of of, of plywood decking to give an, a person an idea of what size they need to be. And that's roughly about five trusses, sixteen inches on center. So, and and you can extend off that, and you go you go full braid. That's thirty two. You extend down on that on that uh, pitched roof. You know, you're going you're going eight by eight. That's huge. And people say, well, crazy, you don't it. You've already got the roof, the place is on fire. It doesn't matter. If we put it out, they're going to get a roof, you know. And one real quick thing I want to throw in there. When you do horizontal, keep in mind, when you do horizontal with fires, we want to know where the fire is at. We want to know the building construction we're dealing with. And we want to look at the conditions such as wind conditions. That can completely change the whole operation and how far off the ground we are when we're doing this because of horizontal ventilation. A lot of times it's what we've got. But if you open that stairwell and you open that you open that bulkhead or something like that, you still may create that wind driven fire on those guys in the hallway trying to make that push. Wanna throw that in. Yeah. No, it's, it's all good stuff. I appreciate that that follow up. Uh, well we try and keep these around an hour and we're 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 up on about an hour and twenty minutes at this point. So um I think I'm going to call it here, fellas. I know we could spend the rest of the day talking about this stuff, um, but uh, and I really appreciate your your input for this. Um, you know, Chris is on vacation. Chris Short's on vacation, and Art's a retired guy now. He's probably got a tea time or something. He's got to I'll get to. And, and uh, you know, Chris is uh, Chris is on his day off. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So. Um, Anyway, I really appreciate it, guys. Looks like we lost Chris Short. Oh, here he comes back. There's All right. Me. Another um, cockroach. No problem. <laughs> no problem. So, no, that's a problem. So, anyway, thanks, guys. Uh, hope you're all doing, you know, take care. Have a good day. To the audience, thanks for tuning in. Uh, we'll see you next month when uh, we'll be broadcasting live from FDIC. Uh, so, looking forward to that. And uh, everybody stay safe. Thank you.